Our uh, celebrity culture is sort of weird. I don't know if you know that. I'm sure you probably do. Um, I have always thought it's weird and never quite understood it, what people's fascination was with celebrities. You've probably seen those videos. For me, it's on YouTube. For you, some of you probably lived through it, of the Beatles coming to town and the ladies going crazy and fainting when the Beatles appear. That sounds ludicrous to me, or it sounded ludicrous to me, until I found myself one day sitting at a lunch table five feet from Steve Jobs. He was at the next table, did not know who I was, still didn't know who I was after the lunch. But me and my friends sat there silent, hoping that perhaps we could glean some bit of conversation that was there at the table between all these men who were gathered around way more brilliant than I am. One day I was working at a store, and I was watching out the front door, and it was one evening, and these cameras and lights and all of this crowd just passed by the front of the store. And all of the employees got up and, and ran for the front door and, and went out and came back in and they were just beside themselves. One of the Kardashians had passed by. I was at a hotel one time and a crowd of people came around and it was all these very young ladies that passed by and I got a glimpse of someone that was, some guy that was standing in the middle. Apparently, Huey Lewis and the News were staying in the hotel that we were staying in. And I'm not sure whether that guy was Huey, whether he was Lewis, or perhaps one of the News. I don't know. I had never heard of Huey Lewis and the News until that moment. But there was a crowd that was very interested in Huey Lewis and the News. How would you respond? Perhaps it's not Steve Jobs. Perhaps it's not one of the Kardashians. Perhaps it's not Huey Lewis and the News, or even the Beatles. But maybe for you it might be someone that you are fascinated by. Someone that perhaps you look up to. Maybe it's someone current, or maybe it's someone in history. How would you feel if that person walked up to you and just wanted to meet you? Just wanted to talk to you? What would you do? What would you think? How would you act? What if they asked you if they could come over to your house for dinner that night? What would you do? How would your behavior change around this person? In our passage this morning, we're going to see a few things. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Christ telling His disciples about the imminence of His return. When He returns, what is it going to be like for the disciples and for really all of the world? What is going to happen when He comes back? And so in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to describe to his disciples, really for one final time, how that day is going to go, what it's going to look like, what everyone is going to experience when the Lord of all creation comes back and we are all standing before him. And what we're going to find is that a pivotal factor in his judgment is how one responds to the king. Let's look at our text this morning, Matthew 25, 
Verses 31 to 46 is where we are this morning. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will hear him saying, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the, the least of these, my, my brothers, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this text is daunting, and I pray for understanding. I pray that you would speak in place of me to each and every person in this room, that as we hear, as we read, as we seek to understand, that you may enlighten our eyes, our minds, our hearts, that we may see, we may understand what it is you're saying to us, and that we may obey it by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. This is the last sermon in Matthew for the rest of the summer. So, we're about to begin next week uh, our summer in the Psalms. We're going to resume our summer in the Psalms. We're going to be starting with Psalm 21 next week. And we're going to be going all the way through Psalm 30 in subsequent weeks. And that will take us all the way up through uh, August 1st, I guess it is. And we will, Lord willing, resume Matthew 26 starting on August 8th. So what that means for us is that the curtain is going to be closing here on the last bit of Matthew chapter 25. Now, I couldn't think of a better ending or a more fitting ending than this chapter in Matthew. It's not a chipper one. Alright? It's not going to be like a cheery, kind of pick-you-up sort of passage. I, I get that. However, I think it should be a sobering one. And so... With that in mind, I think it's really important for us, as we think about this text, 
to really lay out some prerequisites, some things that we really need to know that are part of the puzzle pieces, that if we can fit these together, it helps us, I think, understand what Jesus is going to say to the people that he's that are before him in this passage. Because admittedly, it's a complex passage. It's one that is hard to listen to and hard to really think through. But I think a couple of prerequisites will really help us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Remember, over the past, since we've been in the book of Matthew, we've been in the book of Matthew for three and a half years. All right, going through it. I know, I know. It's slow. That's okay. But uh, we've been going through it for the last three and a half years, and what we've seen from the very beginning is that Jesus is bringing this kingdom. And Matthew introduced us to that all the way back in chapter 1, where he talked about this king, he gave his lineage, here's the king coming in. We, we learned what he was going to be and who he was, Jesus of Nazareth. And then a few chapters later, Jesus actually gains his own voice. He comes and, and begins preaching. And what he begins saying to the people that he's talking to is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's telling them that I am the king and I am bringing with me a kingdom. And we learn a little bit about that kingdom and what it really is, but it's important for us as we think about the nature of this kingdom to really consider for just a minute, what kind of community is Jesus building? What kind of community did he actually build? He calls it the church. This is his church that he's building, but what, what is its makeup? What is its nature? What is that church supposed to be like? What was Jesus' intention as he established this church on earth? What was his goal? What is that kingdom supposed to look like? And as we wrestle with the relationship between us and him, between him and us, I think it's really important to look at two pieces of that relationship. I want you to think really deeply about this for just a second. The first part of the relationship between Christ and His church is that we have a king who has condescended from heaven to meet with His people. We know that, right? We celebrate that every Christmas. We should know that, for goodness sakes. We should know that at some point in human history, about 2,000 years ago, Christ took on flesh and became human. That means that this king actually condescended from heaven, came to us, took on flesh, and dwelt with us. Paul tells us this in Philippians 2, 5-8. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what that means is that human flesh is not something Jesus had before Christmas, let's say. Before he came to earth and took it on. And he associated with us in that he became like us. He actually became a man. He took on flesh. But that's not all. Because then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, if you put those two pieces together, if you connect those two dots, then what we understand about this king is that he's not a king like every other king that you might know. King of another land, let's say. It is common. In fact, we know this. For millennia this has been true. There is not a single king that seeks to associate with commoners. There's not one. For millennia we have seen, it is, it is true, it seems foreign to us, but it is true that amongst royal bloodlines, who do they marry? Next of kin. Why? So they don't mix their royal bloodline with the bloodline of commoners. That's decidedly not what we see in Christ. That the king we serve actually became like his subjects. He took on human flesh. He became like us. And the author of Hebrews tells us, Part of that is so to sympathize with us in our weakness. He became weak. Paul says not only weak, but obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how much like us he became. So, the first thing, and this is part that we we are pretty familiar with, that we have to understand Jesus became like us. That's the nature of our relationship. He has human flesh like I have human flesh. He has a resurrected body like I will one day have a resurrected body. He is able to associate with me. He became like me. He knows what my life is like because he lived a life like it, yet without sin. That's the first part. He became like us. But there's a second part that we think about far less And I think we should spend more time thinking about it. And that is that this king changed his people to be like him. He became like us. Yes, we know that. He changed us to become like him. That's what we need to spend a lot of time thinking about. And it's crucial to understanding the text that's sitting in front of us. Obviously, this is... We understand the first part. We celebrate that on Christmas, but we have been changed to be like Him. Look, listen to what, what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So first, Jesus takes on our nature, and then he allows us to become partakers in his nature. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a passage that many of you are going to be very familiar with. It's probably part of your memory verses growing up, maybe. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been recreated. Created completely different. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, why is that true? Why can Paul say that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation? 
Because at the point that you were in Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside you. Think about what that means for just a second. If the Holy Spirit, the very nature of God, the third person of the Godhead, if He is in me, then I have His nature dwelling in me. I have the nature of God dwelling within me. Do you understand that? You understand what kind of power that is? You understand how remarkable and mind-blowing that is? So the Holy Spirit that empowered Christ to live with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that same Spirit that empowered Christ to live perfectly that way is dwelling within me also. Now, I also have a sinful flesh, which is going to continue to do battle against. But the point is, I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation because you do too. So the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, Paul tells us in Romans. So then Paul also tells us just a, in the previous book, 1 Corinthians six seventeen, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Two verses later, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. So, he took on our nature. That's true. We know that. He took on our nature. But if we are in Christ, we also take on His. So, when the New Testament says of the church that Christ is our head and we are His body, it's this union that it's trying to depict. We have His nature and He has ours. He is our head and we are His body. What happens to us happens to Him. We suffer, he suffers. What happens to him happens to us. He's resurrected, we will be resurrected. Get it? There's an association there that is inseparable. He is the head of the church and we are his body. Now, you might be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with the text that's sitting in front of us? I can understand why you might be thinking that. But I think this not only helps us understand why these people are condemned and sent to hell. It helps us understand the ground on which they're condemned. Why are they condemned? It seems so arbitrary what he says here, the reason for their condemnation. Why are they condemned and sent to hell? Further, why are the people accepted and brought into the kingdom? They don't even think they deserve such a thing. There's two observations that I want us to make about this passage. The first is that people are accepted and rejected from the kingdom based on their response to Jesus. People are accepted and rejected from the kingdom based on their response to Jesus. Now, on first read in this passage, it might not seem that way. On first read in this passage, it seems like, well, it looks like if you just kind to others. 
That seems to be what he's saying. If any one of you were to join the church, we typically do a pastoral interview where I sit down with you and I, I ask you several questions. What is the gospel? What does it mean to believe the gospel? What would you say to somebody if they wanted to hear the gospel? How would you tell it to them? I want to know things like that. What is it that you believe is the gospel? And what does it really mean to go to heaven? What does that mean? How do you get there? And if anyone were to say to me, well, the Bible says if I feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and do prison ministry, I'm going to heaven. If anyone were to say that, I would say, we need to spend more time talking about the gospel. I don't think you have it down yet. Let's go through a book together or something. And yet, there is Jesus in this passage, and he seems to say exactly that. Well, if you clothe the naked, if you do prison ministry, you're in. And it appears as though you can read it on cursory glance as though what Jesus is recommending is works righteousness. If you just do these certain things, then you'll get into heaven. You're saved, in other words, by the works that you can accomplish in this life. If you feed the poor, well, then you're in heaven. If you do prison ministry, well, then you're in heaven. Further, it looks like if you don't do these things, oh, the consequences couldn't be more dire. Well, you turn down an opportunity to do prison ministry, and you're in hell for all of eternity. Seems like not a great alternative. So what's going on here? How is it that I could say it's based on your response to Jesus? How is it that I can say that when it seems as though Jesus might be advocating for the opposite? It's about your response to all these other people. This passage is divided into two parts, and Jesus says virtually the same thing in both parts. He says one to one group, uh, to the sheep, it's positive, and obviously to the goats, it's negative. But other than that, it's virtually the same thing that he says to each group. So in verse 31, we can see very clearly that this is the end of human history that we're looking at. Everybody's standing before the Lord, he has returned, and he is separating sheep from goats, and he's judging everyone right there. So this is the end of the entire world. Christ has returned, he's come back, and now he's separating everybody else out. And verse 32 tells us he separates as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so, this is the judgment that we've been looking for since early on in Matthew. We've seen this really towards the very beginning, but even if you want to investigate, just go back to Matthew chapter 13 sometime and just read through Matthew chapter 13. You'll, you'll see two parables in there, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net, which basically describe exactly the scene, but in parable form. Basically, Jesus coming back, separating weeds from wheat and separating uh, bad fish from good fish. And so, in this passage, he commends, he tells them what it's going to be like on that day when all the nations are standing before him. He is going to separate sheep from goats. He's going to commend the sheep, and he's going to condemn the goats, and it's on the same grounds. He says the sheep, they fed him when he was hungry. They visited him when he was sick and in prison. They clothed him when he was naked. They welcomed him when he was a stranger. And the goats, very simply, he says, you did not, to which both are going to respond, when? When did these things happen? I don't know what you're talking about. When did all of this happen? 
The sheep can't understand how they could possibly be commended for an action they don't even remember taking. And the goats can't believe that they're being condemned for what they think is a crime they didn't commit. We're being framed here. We didn't do those things that you're saying we didn't do. We didn't turn you away from hell. The reveal, obviously, is at the end of each part of the passage to the sheep and the goats, that inasmuch as they have acted this way towards Jesus' brothers, they've acted towards Him. And I think it's important to recognize that the people who were cared for by the sheep and rejected by the goats, most likely what He's got in mind here are disciples of His. Okay? That's who He's pointing to. Disciples of mine. Inasmuch as you did them to these disciples of mine, you did it to me. How do we know that? Well, first he calls them brothers. Here in the text, he calls them brothers, the least of these my brothers. He's going to say the same thing about the disciples in 28.10 at the end of the book. And he's already said this in chapter 12, verse 50, when he says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So who is it he's calling brothers? It's the people who are his disciples that do the will of the Father. So you can imagine, just a short time from this moment, where Jesus will ascend to be with the Father. And he's going to leave all of his disciples alone. Or seemingly alone. And what is it that he's going to task them with doing? Well, they're going to go out and they're going to be sharing the gospel from town to town. They are literally going to be preaching the good news of Jesus' resurrection. They're going to tell everybody, hey, we have a guy who rose from the dead. That's That's a game changer if you're not familiar. And you need to understand who this guy is. They're preaching the good news. And in some places, you're going to read in the book of Acts... And the rest of the New Testament, and we know from church history, in some places, they're going to be accepted, they're going to be received warmly, their message is going to be heard, people are going to believe in Jesus, and they're going to celebrate the fact that these people are here to tell them the good news. And then, they're going to go to the next town. And that town that they're going to go to is not going to receive them the same way. That town is going to beat them, it's going to flog them, in some places going to kill them, going to strip them naked, going to kick them out of the synagogues. It's going to put them in prison. But while they're in prison, the previous town is going to hear of their arrest, and they're going to care for them. They're going to send them provisions, send them visitors by night to bring them food. This is, by the way, how prisons work around the world even to this day. It's why it's such a shameful thing in many countries to get thrown into prison because now you've put your family in a position where they have to take care of you because if they don't bring you food daily, you're you're dead. They don't feed you. They don't clothe you. They don't give you three meals and cable television and a warm place to sleep. They don't do any of that. They give you a cold place to sleep. They They make you endure the elements. They don't feed you because you need to suffer. It's your family that has to come feed you. Well, these churches, these people who have been converted and believe in Jesus are going to hear of the arrest of the disciples and they're going to come and they're going to take care of them and they're going to give them money and provisions. Once they are released, they're going to bring them coats and blankets so that they can stay warm. But the beauty of the picture here 
is that Jesus tells everybody that's listening, when you did this, you did it to me. You didn't do it to them. You did it to me. And whenever you didn't do it, you didn't do it for me. Do you understand that? When you put these disciples of mine in prison, did you know that it was me you were putting in prison? Did you know that it was me you were beating? As you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now he's told his disciples this a few chapters ago, back all the way in chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, that is believers, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. He's been telling us this since at least midway through the book. In other words, the disciple of Jesus has Jesus' very nature in him. Jesus has come to save her. He has taken on flesh like she has. He has put his nature in him so that the two are now so intimately connected that when one persecutes a Christian or refuses the gospel being preached, they're refusing Jesus Himself, and it is on these grounds that they're rejected. It's because you have refused Jesus. It is because you have persecuted Jesus. Their good treatment of perfect strangers is indicative of how they actually feel about Jesus. In other words, it's not just kind treatment to an individual. Everything that we see, the glasses that we look through now and see other people is people that are made in the image of God. That we treat as potentially Jesus standing in front of us. Same is true of those that rejected disciples of Jesus. It's Jesus they actually treated that way, not just His disciples. Remember what Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Saul has just partaken in the stoning of Stephen. As far as we know, Saul had nothing to do with the actual physical crucifixion of Jesus. But yet Jesus comes to him on the road to Damascus after he's already killed Stephen and he's heading on his way to kill more Christians and he interrupts his journey and he says, why are you persecuting me? You understand, that's me you're persecuting. So the goats are not sent to hell because they said no to prison ministry. They're going to hell because their rejection of gospel-believing saints which is tantamount to Jesus himself. The rejection of the saints is the rejection of the message. 
Their rejection of the message is the rejection of Jesus. Their rejection of Jesus, Jesus says, is the rejection of God himself. Second thing I want us to observe here. The fruit of inclusion in the household of faith. The fruit of inclusion in the household of faith is radical hospitality. I want you to think about this for just a second. Fruit of inclusion in the household of faith is radical hospitality. Jesus says similar things to those on his right and to those on his left, but obviously the biggest difference is there in verse 41 when he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a popular idea that's floating out there in churches galore that says that the wicked, when they are sent to eternal punishment, that that means that they will be annihilated. That Jesus will come back and he will simply, he won't send them to some place called hell forever and ever as a place of torment and torture. That's ridiculous, they say. But that they will be snapped out of existence altogether, like Thanos or something. It's only some of you got that. That's okay. Like eight billion people watched the movie, so I mean, come on. But I think here in this passage, Jesus just dismisses that notion out of hand. The fate of the disciples, he says very clearly, is the same fate as the devil and his angels. Yes? You see that there in 41? The same fate to those who are on the left, let's say, is the same fate as the devil and his angels. Now, where do they go? Well, we learn more about this place in Revelation 20.10, and it says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That doesn't sound like annihilation. That sounds like torment day and night forever and ever. Those on his left go to the same place. Now, this can be awfully uncomfortable to think about, to talk about. Often we even steer clear of this subject when it comes to evangelism. We've probably, some of us may have grown up hearing those famous kind of turn or burn, fire and brimstone kinds of sermons where the whole content of the message was turn or burn. It seemed unloving to us when we heard those things. And so it grew out of favor with us. We grew up and we started to steer clear of saying those kinds of things in front of people because it's not really comfortable to think about. But do you notice that as you read the gospel message and you hear Jesus teach that he does not shy away from it? He's actually the only one who knows. You realize that? Everybody else who knows can't come back to tell the tale. He knows he's been there or he's seen it. And he can say what it's like and he doesn't shy away from it at all. In fact, he doubles down on it. This is just in the book of Matthew. Only in the book of Matthew. Okay, That's all we're considering right now. Six times he describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Three times, he calls it a place of outer darkness. Two times, he calls it hell of fire. Two times, he calls it eternal fire. Two times, he says to his audience, you would be better to either cut off your hand or gouge out your eye if that was causing you to sin than it would be to keep the hand and keep the eye and walk into hell. It's better to be blind and lame than it is to walk into hell. Another time, he says it would be better if you had a giant, like picture Stonehenge-sized stone, it would be better if you had that stone tied around your neck and somebody pushed you off a boat in the middle of the ocean and you fell all the way down to the lowest point and your body was crushed by the weight of the water until you eventually just drowned or were, became a human pizza or whatever it would be that would happen to you on your way down. It would be better that happened to you than to go into hell. That's how he describes it. So, the subject of hell is really intimidating. And honestly, I don't love or relish being the one who's standing up here having to talk about it, to be honest with you. It's difficult to say. It's difficult to talk about it. But perhaps instead of being fearful of it, we might heed the warnings of the one who knows what it's like. Maybe. Maybe it might be worth just stopping for a second and just considering he didn't shy away from talking about it, and he wanted us to know just how bad it was, and he related it to things that we could understand so that you would know, I don't want to go there for any reason. And I would rather do anything than go there. I would do anything it took to stay out of there. But have you ever noticed that the ones that have the biggest problem with the reality of hell are the ones that are rejecting your message of the gospel because of it? You know that? You're telling them about Christ and you're saying how they can have salvation and they're saying, I could never believe in a God who would send someone to hell like that. And you're saying, I'm telling you how to get out of it. That's burying the lead, as they say. Okay, you're concerned about his ethics, but let's pause for a moment and let's just consider, is it real? Is it a reality? If it is, then you might want to consider how to escape it. Because Jesus spent so much time talking about it. You might be here this morning and you might have never considered ever in your life the realities of an eternity in hell. And I'm going to be the bearer of bad news that without Christ you will be there. An eternity in hell. That one day you're going to stand before an almighty judge. And this judge is depicted for us in verse 31 as the Son of Man sitting on His glorious throne. At which point your sin is going to be laid bare in front of Him. He knows it all. You can't hide it anymore. Everyone knows it. You know it. The Son of Man sitting on His glorious throne 
He knows it. He has you dead to rights. It's laid bare in front of you, and you are going to be without excuse. Now, that's the bad news. Because what he's going to do is not measure your bad deeds versus your good deeds. That's what the world thinks he's going to do. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to measure your sin against his. Well, he has none. He's the one sitting on the glorious throne. He has no sin. So what is your sin going to look like to that? If that's the standard for heaven, you're not getting in, I'm not getting in, none of us in this room are getting in. Because that's the standard. That's the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is that this same glorious king took on human flesh associated with us in our weakness and yet did not sin and still went to the cross and suffered the pain and torment of the wrath of God on your behalf. And what he offers you because he has suffered for you is forgiveness of your sin through his blood and through his atonement. That's what's offered to you right now. It's truly good news. It's the only good news there actually is. If you were thirsty and I told you there's water over here, I have it, that's great, that's temporary good news, but if you still die and go to hell, it doesn't matter. What does temporarily staving off your thirst actually do for you? Not much. Not if you spend an eternity in hell. That is the point of this passage. That this king is the one who has the sole right to judge and he is the one who has come down, has condescended to us and taken on human flesh and he has given us of his nature with the Holy Spirit. What you can do right now you can confess your sins to him. You can lay them bare in front of him. He already knows them, by the way. He already has you dead to rights. Why don't you just confess them to him? You might not know them all. No one does. But start laying them out there. Tell him you, you need salvation. Lord, I recognize I am a sinner. I am condemned to die. And without salvation through Christ alone, I cannot be saved. Save me. Here are sins for which you have me dead to rights. Confess them. Then trust that after you confess them, that He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But don't just stop there. So many want that to be the end. Just going to confess my sins and then go on and never return again. That's not what he's wanting. Come back with us. Participate with us in the worship of him Sunday in and Sunday out. In gratitude for what he has done for us in Jesus. Grow in your understanding of what it means to follow after Christ. Don't wait. Do it now. Heed the warning that he's got for you here in the scriptures. Now I suspect more than one of us in here might shudder 
at the thought that we might be in this group on the left. It's terrifying. Can we just own that for just a second? That's terrifying to be in that group. Look at them. They're in utter amazement. They're caught off guard. They didn't know this was going to be happening. They didn't know their life was going to be demanded of them at that moment. They're completely caught off guard. In Matthew 7, they even say to him, We prophesied in your name. Worse, they think they did it. They think they are in the group. They think they should be anyway, in the group on the right. I should be with the sheep. You got it wrong. It's terrifying to think about. But get what he's saying here. You can know. That's what he's saying. You can know right now. You don't have to wait till that day. You can know right now what group you're in by looking at the fruit that is produced in your life. What sort of fruit is coming out? Is it the fruit of inclusion in the household of faith is radical hospitality. He's saying that is the fruit. Look at what they did. Look at how they treated the presentation of the gospel. Look at how they treated the bearers of those who preached the gospel. Look how they treated those in the household of faith. Look how they treated those they didn't know perfect strangers. Look at how they treated them. That's fruit that the Holy Spirit was indwelling, producing that. You can see that right now. You don't have to wonder what that day is going to be like. Notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that faith is equal to hospitality. Well, then if you want to go to heaven, you just welcome people in your home. You be nice. Give them water. Dig wells. Don't worry about sharing the gospel. Just go dig a well. Give them a cup of cold water. You might mention something about Jesus, or you might wear a Christian t-shirt, but that's all you have to do. That's not what I'm saying. It's saying that hospitality, radical hospitality, radical kindness, is a fruit of inclusion in the household of faith. It's one of the many powerful evidences that you are in the family of God what you do for others. If you've been here for any period of time, you may know how important Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is. I probably mention it one out of every at least two sermons. It says this, and, and it basically summarizes what should be becoming truer of the everyday believer every single day. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We are partakers in the divine nature. Christ has given us His nature through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So what then should be happening to us? Well, that indwelling Holy Spirit should then be producing the fruit of the Spirit which Paul enumerates in that passage. And no doubt that's probably not an exhaustive list. There are probably many other things that could be included in there. But as it turns out, this fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, it doesn't just exist in a vacuum. 
doesn't just exist inside your four walls. It actually touches the lives of other people. Your love, your goodness, your gentleness, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your self-control. All of that has an impact on other people, on people next to you. You can't just love yourself or just love in a vacuum. You love other people. You're not just patient with yourself. You're patient with other people. You don't exercise self-control just with yourself. Certainly you do. But it's also with other people that you do this. The fruit of the Spirit that it produces for those in the household of faith is radical hospitality, kindness, and love for other people. So Paul says in the next chapter, in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I'm afraid that what passes for church in America, particularly in the South, is woefully short of what the Bible actually depicts a church is. Most of what we experience in a church is quite surface level. You come in and you associate with others briefly from about 9-ish to about 12-ish, sometimes 12.30, on a Sunday morning. That's not a hint. We're getting close. Don't worry. (laughs) You heard Tom preach. I mean, then it's... (laughs) But you associate on the surface. How's your day? How's your week? With some people, and then other people you don't even know. Couldn't tell you their name, much less their date of birth. It's Blake's birthday. Did y'all know it's Blake's birthday? been leading you in worship all this time his birthday perhaps we make some friends others are complete and total strangers to us but in the scriptures i want you to get this picture in the scriptures the church is something of a nature preserve for the garden of eden understand that you know why because We have his nature. The same nature that is at work, was at work in Christ, is now at work in us, which was before the fall in the work of Adam and Eve. It is that which sustains us by the word of God, is his spirit. So if we have his nature in us, then we're something of a nature preserved for the Garden of Eden. So in the midst of a world that is ensnared by darkness and sin, the Spirit of God has actually transformed some people on this earth. We have a sinful nature too. But we also have a Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He's transformed His children. And in them, the fruit of the Spirit is growing And so their lives together now begin to look like the first fruits of paradise. Do you understand that? In the midst of a sinful world, wait a minute, there's a group in here that are really patient and loving and kind and gentle. They strive towards self-control. They are convicted by sin and they seek to 
purge it out of their lives. They don't want anything to do with it. The trees that are in there, they're not mature yet. They're saplings. That's true. And the vines and the plants, they just have buds on them. But you can tell that the fruit being produced is different than the fruit of the world. It's something of a preserve for the Garden of Eden. And all the unrighteousness, the clover on the ground, it's slowly being choked out day by day. So what that means then in the church is that poverty shouldn't exist here. Remember what it tells us in Acts? They were giving themselves to the preaching and teaching of the apostles, and no one among them was with, was, had need because those that had plenty sold what they had and provided for those who had need. There also wasn't laziness. There also isn't laziness. There's working hard, as Paul says. There's not sickness and disease inside the church. That's only the thing that translates us into eternal life. Are you kidding me? We're not scared of death. We shouldn't be anyway. Though I think potentially this last year has shown us we've got work to do. Perhaps we shouldn't be nearly as afraid of death as we are. Maybe it betrays our unbelief. Immorality and evil, that shouldn't exist within the walls of the church. That's confronted. That's confrontation. Holy confrontation. Hey, that's sin. You're right, that is sin. Let me confess that. Let me deal with that. Making amends where there is amends. And where there is some who remain unrepentant, that person is purged, as Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 5, and as Jesus told us in Matthew 18. Where there is unrepentance, that's evidence that person is not in the Garden of Eden. No, no, no. Not in the kingdom of God. No, they are part of the world because they have the fruit of unrighteousness within them. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. So do you see what this adds up to? That means that how we treat each other actually matters. Uh Uh-oh. How we treat each other actually matters. Every sour attitude inside the church actually matters. It deeply matters. It tells everybody what you believe about the gospel. A sour attitude. Can you imagine that for just a second? Whoa. Every offensive tone, every biting criticism... Every gossip and slander, it all matters. It matters deeply because it changes what we believe about the gospel. It changes the very nature of who we are. The nature and tone of member meetings actually matters. You think of that? (laughs) Everybody's been a part of those infamous church business meetings. You know, where so-and-so got mad at what's-his-face and got up and stormed out and the whole thing blew up. Everyone was in chaos, arguing back and forth, lobbing grenades back and forth to one another, attributing false motives and slander to the other person, doing all those kinds of things. Do you understand that Jesus is actually watching our member meetings? Which is particularly astounding because half of you don't. 
<laughs> Half of the members don't. But Jesus is actually watching those member meetings. What kind of attitude is present there? What kind of motives are being attributed to this person? What kind of grenades are being lobbed across the aisle? All of that actually matters. Because those kinds of things, those bad business meetings, they're actually egregious in what they say this church believes about the gospel. Those business meetings, they don't happen in a vacuum either. They are rejecting those who are one of these, my brothers. They're the fruit of people on the left. I don't mean the political left. I mean in the scene here. The left. Those he separates on this side. That's the fruit of them. Rejection of these, my brothers. So it matters a lot. That's not having your words seasoned with salt. It's got fingerprints of the devil all over it. The fruit of inclusion in the kingdom of God is radical hospitality. It's kindness. It's gentleness. It's assuming positive intent. It is actual love toward other people, especially toward those of the household of faith, those within the garden. But here's the twist to that. We don't actually know who's in the garden. We have some ideas with some, but we don't know who they all are. So our hospitality doesn't just extend to the person that we know has been our brother or sister in the Lord for a long time. It doesn't just extend to them. It extends to that guy over there because I'm not sure. It extends to that neighbor of mine who I'm not sure where he is either. And all the way to that coworker who I really don't know at all. Perhaps one day he or she does become a follower of the Lord, in which case, how would I have treated them? Can you imagine? So it extends to everybody. And can you imagine? What that kind of radical hospitality, what level of evangelism that actually is to people who are watching? Where they experience that kind of radical hospitality, they're in prison and you go and you meet them where they are and you clothe them and you provide for them and you give them food and water and you do everything possible to meet their needs. Can you imagine what level of evangelism that actually is? In which case they come to Christ and you've been doing that for your brother all along and you didn't even know it. Can you imagine what that level of hospitality does? So then the question comes to you when the righteous judge comes to you and, well, and puts you in front of him. When he wants to sit at your dinner table, how are you going to respond? What do you do? Because the way you treat even the least of these gives you your answer. That's how you're already doing it. For people at EBC, this is the importance of our small group ministry. This is where it is, right here. Now, small groups is rebooting after the blip and 
<laughs> growing, and, and so we're just getting it now back off the ground and reestablishing a lot of it, so bear with us, be patient with us. But this is why small groups exist. It gives us an opportunity to exercise that kind of hospitality, actually having people in our homes, actually literally feeding them, perhaps even having our neighbor over to join us, or the person across the street, that they might also be intrigued by that level of hospitality. It gives us the opportunity to practice this kind of hospitality for others. For other people in this room, perhaps you're not a member of this church or maybe any other church. Maybe you've been visiting from church to church or maybe you've just been kind of going at home and either watching online or maybe that fell off too and and you're kind of not doing really anything right now. In which case, I would say to you, let me just encourage you, you may think that you can love Christ without loving His church, but you can't. Loving Christ means loving His body. As imperfect as they are, and we are, we have sometimes those member meetings in our past that blew up. Hopefully they won't be a part of our future. We have sometimes been mad at each other and come to blows and things like that. And hopefully that won't be a part of our future either. But we're imperfect. So odds are it's going to be there somewhere. It's not sitting at home and scorning those hypocrites over there. That's coming in and joining us. <laughs> Being a hypocrite with us sometimes. <laughs> Forgiving, exercising patience and love and gentleness and self-control. Growing together. Presenting to others outside a compelling argument for following Christ. So that on this day, when Christ returns, we can, all of us, together, stand before the throne in celebration that we're included in the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do this in our hearts. I pray that you would use this text. Anything that was said, perhaps, to break through the rough exteriors that sometimes exist in our hearts and compel us toward a life of radical hospitality toward a life of following you, toward a life of loving others because of our love for you, that on that day, fruit of our life may reflect the fact your spirit has been dwelling in our hearts all along. In Jesus' name.